The podcasting routine begins with me opening up my laptop, a 2019 MacBook Pro from the Apple Store in Tarzana. Then I attach my Toner 2000 microphone onto our coffee table, an original Harbensgund from Ikea. And I plug in my Western Digital external hard drive, two terabytes, exclusive at Best Buy. Then I open up the latest version of Adobe Premiere Cloud, plug in my Panasonic headphones, and hit record. There's an idea film is lit, a suggestion. You can listen to us. And maybe you'll recognize a fun podcast about comparing books to movies. But we simply aren't there. (laughs) Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. Why do we do it? Because we want to fit in. My name is Danny. I'm the self-appointed film expert. I'm Laura, the self-appointed literature expert. Amen. And this is a full spoilers podcast. So we're going to be spoiling everything, everything in the book and everything in the movie. So we just want to put that disclaimer up there right at the top so we don't forget. Uh, It should be obvious, but there it is. Uh, And this is another special episode. Not only do we have two guests, but two returning guests. And they have an even more special connection in that they're my family members, my brothers. Please welcome back Matt and Tim. Matt, say hello. Hey, guys. I just have to return some videotapes. Awesome. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of what reference I should put in there, and I was, yeah, that didn't come into play, but I'm glad you said it. Uh, Tim, <laughs> Tim, say hello. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you might recognize Tim from our Ready Player One episode and Matt with our uh, episode on The Martian. That was almost a, almost a year ago when we recorded that. Yeah, wow. November 2020. Wow. We recorded that, yeah. That's nuts. We've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half now. It's pretty, pretty nuts to think about. It. But yeah, today we have a very light entertainment, not uh, intense or controversial at all. We watched it over coffee and breakfast. Yeah. So I don't know what everyone else is doing. A great way to start your day with some American Psycho. Yeah. I hope you guys watched that over coffee at a coffee shop, wide out in the open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not trying to hide the screen at all. <laughs> We actually kept our blinds closed this morning, just in case anyone was looking in. Yeah, we. <laughs> yeah, it was a little, it was a little much in certain scenes, especially we had it on full blast. We're like, maybe it's a little too early for this, but yeah, this is the first time we had read the novel, and boy, is it is it something based off of Brett Easton Ellis's infamous book uh when was it published 1991 1991 yeah. vintage books not scribner's because they or schuster and schuster because they pulled out after reading it they were like nope yeah we're, we're not yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we're not we're not publishing this <laughs> and this was like yeah <laughs> yeah it was like i want to say like weeks but probably more like a month or so a couple months before they were gonna print and they were like, you can keep the $300,000 advance we gave you. We're just not going to publish it. Wow. And Brett Easton Ellis <laughs> was like, all right, I'll go shopping. And uh, Vintage published it a few months later. Yeah. 
Also, is Brett Easton Ellis in jail right now? Because he should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he I committed did. a crime per se, but he should be in jail. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those pieces of literature that you read it and you go, I get it. And uh, there's about 300 more pages after it <laughs> that you need to get through. So, yeah, this is going to be an X-rated episode. We're talking about some very lewd and graphic material. I'm going to have some hot takes, though. I'm very excited to discuss this. I I'm think... very excited to hear, yeah, I want to hear that <laughs> on this movie. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm interested. I feel like hot takes are your thing now. Like this is like the podcast. Like you and chic. Hot yeah, very chic. Yeah. Um, let's get right into it. So we start off this podcast with our personal journeys of where we first saw the movie or read the book and what we thought about it. So Matt, take us away. What's your personal journey with American Psycho? So I'll start. I'll start two summers ago. So two summers ago, you guys were starting this podcast, and Laura pulled me aside. She said, "Look." We're starting Film is Lit, and I need to ask you a favor, Matt. Given the circles that I run in and given the zeitgeist of where I am and where I live in the whole country, and just, I don't want to really alarm your family. So, like, could I ask you to suggest we cover what is my favorite book, American Psycho? <laughs> I don't want the world to know that this is what I am as a person, but it is, it is, it is what it is, and I'm sorry. But if you could do this, this one favor, I'd really love to discuss it. And I think that I just kind of... I just kind of heard evidence of that, given her hot takes. She's just super excited to, to jump in. Thanks for outing me, Matt. <laughs> I read the book this past summer. I listened to it, uh, and I, I made it all the way through. I said, okay, we'll just do half hour every week to, to, to and from the office. But the movie I saw, I guess, sophomore year of high school. And uh, if you can imagine, Tim and Dan know, but in high school, I was even more stoic than I am now, right? Uh, and so as a sophomore in high school, I didn't get it, right? Like, so this guy's running down the hallway naked in only shoes, and there's real estate agents that are covering up murders, re obsessions with reservations. I, got, I just, this is not entertaining to me. And it wasn't until my first year kind of exposure to bro culture on the, uh, the Tufts lacrosse team that I like, I, did I appreciate the lunacy as entertaining as opposed to uh, confusing. Uh, and I, so I, I saw that I saw I'm like every other college kid in the early two thousands, I saw the movie a bunch of times and I heard, well, if you saw it, you liked the movie and the book's messed up and, uh, it is true. I, uh, I listened to the book. I heard this one scene that we can, we're going to talk about was the worst and we got to it. I'm like, okay, I'm over the hump. And, uh, and no, we were not over the hump. It went, it went downwards <laughs> from there, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pumped to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Tim. Yeah. Let me start off by saying this book. Woof. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Guys. Um, well, let me, let me back up. Right. So I, I, I think obviously saw the movie first, not obvious to the listeners, but to uh, the brothers and Laura, like saw the movie first, Matt showed it to me probably when I was way too young uh, to see it, <laughs> but I remember watching it with Matt. I, I don't remember how old I was, but yeah, did not pick up on anything. I thought it was a comedy, to be honest with you. Like, I remember seeing this movie, like, oh, there's some funny dialogue and funny scenes. And it's like, people get murdered. But, you know, it's it was kind of like silly to me. So that was my first American Psycho impression. And so every time I saw it after that, that was, that was kind of my thought process it was like, oh, there's some some silly moments and a surprising amount of quotable lines. I, mm. I quote this movie constantly. Mm. Um, and 
yeah, I'd always heard the book was was pretty brutal, but yeah, I had no idea. And then when we decided to do the podcast, I'm like, oh, you know, it's, this is a movie we've all seen a ton of times. And whenever it's on TV, whether it's halfway through or just beginning or almost ending, I, I stick around and watch it. So Matt was kind of like, Matt, I think Matt had read it first before any of us. And he's like, are we doing this? Is this, like, is this happening? I was like, yeah, I kept asking of course, that too. Of course yeah. we are. Like, why, why wouldn't we? We love this movie. And he's like, okay, all right, let's do it. And man, when I, I, so I listened to the book as well. And I started mm, three months before this podcast and could not finish, did not finish the book. I started to read it. I would have to, the amount of times I had to hit pause while I was driving and just take a few deep breaths and say, okay, we're going to take a break from that and get back to it at another point. And then three months became two, two months became one. And uh, we got to a point where there was just, I think, one scene where I'm like, nope, done with this book. I'm over mm-hmm. this book. I'm over everything about it. And yeah, it did not, did not finish, uh, which was... It was just, it was an exhausting read. It was absolutely mm-hmm. exhausting and brutal. So that's how we got to where we are. And I kind of forgot about it for a little <laughs> while. Um, and now we're going to relive all of it. So let's, let's strap in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. This is also the first time that I've read it. I also did not finish it. This is the first time that I have not made it through a book for this podcast. Um, I got to a certain scene, uh, the part where he murders a food delivery person, and that was kind of my line where I closed the book and kind of like Tim and Matt, I had to read about a chapter at a time, if that. And especially if I was reading after work at night, I was just kind of disturbed and not loving it. So I put it down and I was nervous to watch the movie, but I'd heard so much about how it was different that I was really intrigued. And I ended up really liking the movie. I was really surprised. Wow. This is a first. I I wasn't anticipating that. (laughs) Laura Laura did not tell me what she thought of the movie when it ended. This is a nice surprise. All right. Yeah. I think we finished it like two hours ago. Yeah. And And, oh, well, sorry to interrupt. But normally when a movie ends and Laura doesn't like it, to protect my feelings, she'll go, huh. (laughs) She'll just go, huh. Instead of just saying that, because she knows I'm sensitive with Uh, stuff I love. So this is okay. I'm surprised because you did that at the end of this, but. Yeah, I think there was just, I had to let it wash over me. I am really shocked at how much I liked this movie. And I don't think it's a surprise that he didn't like the book. However, after doing a couple hours of research into this and, and prior to today too, I was reading a lot about the book. And I think that it's a real gift that I read this in 2021 rather than in 1991, because even Brett Easton Ellis has put out a lot of information about where he was coming from at the time that he wrote it. And after reading a couple articles and watching some interviews with him, I'm not interested in rereading the book, but I think if I were to reread it, I could come at it with a really different perspective and understand it better. And I'm shocked that I'm saying that because truly, like, I think it does go too far when it comes down to it. Like, I think that there's a lot of stuff that either is A, like, way too long or B, way too violent. But truly, like, so I don't think it's a perfect book, but I... I understand where he was coming from when he wrote it. 
and I think I can appreciate it more. I don't think I'll ever well, reread it. You are wow. a better but... person than I. <laughs> yeah. Wow. The... I, I, that's why I'm really excited to talk about it because I think yeah. like after reading this one article in particular that Brett Easton Ellis wrote in 2016, I, I just get it a little bit more. So I'm excited to talk about that, but you can talk about your journey. Yeah. First. Well, the novel is 400 pages and it, and if it were a tight 100, like a novella, right. probably it would be great mm -hmm. because you get the point within mm -hmm. uh, the first few pages. I mean, gosh, it's just, and I know that's the point of it's just excess, the mm -hmm. excess mm -hmm. of this time period and the yuppie culture. But even then the point is made a thousand times. So yeah, well, okay. my journey. So like Matt showing Tim the movie, I think it was Tim who showed me the movie when I was in eighth grade and eighth grade is too young to get it. But at that point, I was getting into artsy cinema and different takes. And I just I, I had never seen anything like it before. So I, I liked it on in that regard. And also Christian Bale, just hilarious performance. One of the best performances uh, ever. Yeah. yeah, perfect casting. The Huey Lewis in the News scene, an all-timer. One of the funniest scenes ever. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. I became obsessed with it and I was showing it to all my friends in eighth grade and, and they're like, like Danny, like, well, what, what is this? I'm like, I don't, I don't even know. They're like, <laughs> wait a second. So he didn't kill anyone. I'm like, well, you know, you tell me, you tell me, no, really tell me. Cause I, I'm confused. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it was one of those things where, yeah, it completely flew over my head, but I knew I was watching something deeper. I just couldn't really recognize the themes at the time. And then I kind of became obsessed with the whole culture of it and the whole criticism against it. But then the film was you know, directed by a woman feminist and, and co-written by a woman. So it has that angle. It's a very interesting piece. And I'd been wanting to read the novel for years, but I'd heard of its legacy and how, how it went even further than the movie. And yeah, didn't get around to it until this uh, podcast. I also listened to it. And within the first couple minutes, <laughs> I understood. I'm like, oh, it's one of these things. I think, yeah, they say... Uh, on the first page, I think they say hard bodies eight million times. <laughs> they um, and they also say the bad f word, just like right off the bat, like immediately. And you're like, oh, okay. And having seen the movie a million times, you know, I already knew its message uh, by this point in my life. So the book kind of washed over me. I I listened to it during workouts just to make sure that the time could pass Yikes. by. Well, <laughs> not to Yikes. not to like pump me up, but just to like I couldn't listen to it any other way. Like so to be honest. A thousand crunches now? Yes. Oh yeah. Thousand yeah. Over a thousand. So I had to go back on Cliff Notes a few times because a lot of it I just spaced out and just to say I could finish it, but that probably wasn't the right method because huge stretches of this book. I just have no memory of because I just disconnected. I, I got the point. Although I do agree with this whole, I think there's about six pages devoted to Genesis, uh, the band Genesis. And, and right Houston. before, I, yeah. yes, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I actually agree with every point that Patrick Bateman <laughs> made about Genesis. So I think <laughs> once Phil Collins became front and center, that's when the band really came into their own. Too artsy uh, beforehand. And I had bought the album Duke, I'd forgotten that 
Patrick Bateman mentions the album Duke in the book and movie. And I bought the album and was listening to it. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a crazy coincidence. So that's my one connection to Patrick Bateman there. We agree on Genesis, don't agree on certain <laughs> other places. But yeah, so awesome. Laura, I gotta, I gotta tell you that after I finished listening to this book, I immediately text Dan. Well, first of all, I text him like, hey man, like, are we really gonna do this? I texted Dan, I said, all right, Dan, if we're gonna do this, my only ask is that you set up a camera in front of Laura as she reads this book. And I want a time-lapse <laughs> video of Laura reading this book because that'll be just as entertaining as anything else that uh, we watch. Good point. We should yeah. have done that and live streamed yeah. my reactions to this book. Yeah, all, it all was, of our reactions. All yeah. of our reactions, truly. Yeah, it's one of those things <laughs> where like you would have to turn down the volume if you're in public. You're just like, I'm not letting anyone hear this. <laughs> um, interestingly, uh, the reason that I did read the book because I was going to listen to it because I wasn't really interested in like really pouring a lot of time into it. I looked it up on the library app that I use to rent a lot of books on audio tape, and it is not available through the LA library as an audiobook. It's available in German, which is interesting because the book was banned in Germany, but <laughs> I actually listened to it in German for a while and I was like, obviously I'm not getting anything out of this, but it was interesting that they didn't <laughs> offer it as an audiobook through our library. Um, and that's why I had to read it. But yeah, I think a lot of my... It was just discussed. Like, it, it's just, it goes way too far. I guess we can get it a little bit into the controversy of it because Let's. when it came out, people either called it literal dog shit. They were like, this is literal trash, like pornographic trash. Or people were like, this is the most prolific novel that's been written since The Great Gatsby about wealth and excess in American culture. And I guess the the thing that's really interesting too about it is that people get like emotionally invested in this and they're like, I think a lot of people either attack it or defend it in a very emotional way. Like people are like, if you hate it, you're stupid or you don't get it. And then the people who really don't like it are like, you're you know, you're an actual psychopath if you like this. <laughs> and I find, you know, it's, it's interesting to read a lot of that criticism now because it's like, it's like, why are you being so emotional about this book? Like what, what was making you criticize or defend it so emotionally? Obviously I think it's just because of like how far the book goes with the sexual abuse and obviously like violence and murder and just beating people and how he targets people who are less wealthy than him and people who he finds different. But I, I think there's a lot being said in the book. And I think like, as an, as a technical analysis, I think he's exploring a lot of really interesting themes. So what was funny about, not funny, but what was interesting about listening to the book as opposed to reading it was that the person who narrated the book, he narrated Patrick Bateman describing a meal or clothes with the same kind of exuberance and vibrance as he did when Patrick Bateman was like mutilating a body. So the true sociopath, like I have the same amount of interest and fervor when it comes to triple homicide as I do for like a pig roast, right? At a, at Dorcia, mm -hmm. which interesting. was like, the, yeah, this is an interesting dynamic to, to pick up on as I was listening to it. That's a really interesting choice. Cause I always forget that audiobooks are literally directed. Mm -hmm. And also true to form, they mentioned a certain name many times in the book and only a few times in the movie was Trump. Yeah. Trump was yeah. a recurring theme in the early 90s and again in yeah. 2000. That was really interesting to read, um, especially obviously now with the perspective that we have. Like, right. 
the how the wealthy just continue to rise no matter how psychopathic they really are. And I think I've heard a lot of criticism of Trump that people think he's psychopathic. I think that's almost giving him a little too much brain power, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it's really interesting to read this so many years after the book came out. There's a lot has changed and a lot has not changed. I think some really interesting stuff that I read online was kind of comparing the yuppies of the 80s in New York and like Wall Street to influencers, like social media influencers today. Ooh, mm-hmm. all right. um, mm. That's something that I kind of wanted to talk about um, because at first I was like, like how, do you, how are you making that connection? But it came out of an article that was written by Brett Easton Ellis. And he said that a lot of people have asked him where they think Patrick Bateman is today. Like, where would he have been in 2016 when this article was written? And I was like, what an interesting thing to think about, because I don't really care. Like, I closed the book and I was just like, fuck this guy. Like, hopefully he's in jail. (laughs) But um, Brett Easton Ellis was just writing about how... um, What's your your answer to that, Laura? We should, all, we should all answer that. Yeah. Like, where, yeah. Where would, it's it's where a would... really good question, right? So, well, number one, his answer was he would have been like a dot-com king. Like he would have started like getting into the dot-com craze. I think that's a really good answer. I also think that he would probably just be like obsessively following people on Instagram. And that was kind of my link into like how social media influencers have, have this kind of like this mask and he's always talking about this mask that he wears and like there's no Patrick Bateman like there is no real Patrick Bateman it's just an idea and that's when I started making that connection and so I honestly think he's probably just obsessively curating his Instagram page and even as like a you know 60 year old person like I don't I don't think you ever get past this kind of sickness I think it continues and so that's kind of my answer what about everyone else's? Have you have you ever seen the uh, the Netflix Netflix series You? I think he'd be Penn oh. Badgley from oh, You. Yeah. We we have, we have seen You, and the the second season of You is that we dunk on that all the time. Oh, that's the so worst uh, season of television. Answer. Yep, okay, that's yeah, obsessively the stalking women. Penn Badgley, yeah. Yeah, I think he'd glom on to the influencer culture and try to be like either a manager or a talent agent. Like I think he'd move out to the West Coast uh, if if he was here today. And because a mm. uh, fact that I read that I made note of while I was watching the film was that you never actually see him work in the film like actually do one minute of work whenever he's in his office he's listening to music or talking to someone he's not actually doing his job so that's been a critique of modern day influencers is that they're not actually doing anything they're just recording themselves and they're famous because they're good looking (laughs) so he would probably glob on to that culture or just be involved in the entertainment industry in some point i mean the entertainment industry has been skewered for years as being super but I think the metaphor tracks like people in LA can be as hollow and fake as you know the yuppies of the 80s that's my answer I guess uh, my thought would be a combination of the farmer bro and any GameStop trader, right? So mm. like a GameStop trader, they don't really do anything, but they can create massive swings in financial stability just based on manipulating markets. And But also kind of like the farmer bro, the farmer bro is on 
was live streaming all the time. Just all all attention needs to be on me. I'm doing things. I'm smarter than you. But also, I don't do much other than just raise prices. Mm-hmm. And he's still super rich. And so I, I guess, I think, unfortunately, he'd probably thrive in the whole internet age of things, right? Where he can have multiple multiple personalities online and, and do things uh, with Bitcoin. That's kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, because he is smart enough to handle that field because he went, you know, went to Harvard and he got to a place where he was on his intellect. But then he is allowed to just completely run so that's free a, with that's all a question that I have for you guys after Tim answers the what, where do you be now is the question would be true or false. Patrick Bateman is good at his job. <laughs> oh, but, 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 but Tim, where do you think Patrick Bateman would be working today? Oh, where would he be working? Um, I can't. Would, it, would he be working? Um, I'm not so sure. Let me let me think on that. I, uh... All right. So my gripe with both the book and the movie was, like, don't make this a cliche character who just is where he is because of his parents. I think both the book and definitely the movie make reference to, oh, Patrick, you don't need to work. Doesn't your dad own the bank anyway? Mm-hmm. Which would suggest, like, oh, he's just another entitled white boy, which is just, it's just cliche. I, I, I kind of would have appreciated, I definitely would have appreciated the movie a bit more if, like, look, I'm just so good at my job that I'm bored. And because I'm bored, I'm now escalating to more wild and wild uh, entertainments and fetishes. And that's where he got to, as opposed to just, I'm just some, you know, rich brat. So yeah. like you, Dan, I like to think that he got where he is on his merits, but someone will always say, oh, well, he only got an HBS because of his parents. So he only, you know, got his job because of his parents. Whereas I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. There's a, there's some intellect there. You're right. The book and movie does reference that. And I think he certainly was helped because of his privilege and of his parents and his race. But you start the story at a point where, well, he's gotten to a point in his life, in his career, where now all his vices or all his wants can be explored and he doesn't have to actually worry about working anymore. So I think that corrupts him. So whether or not he's like actually capable of doing a good job, it's like it doesn't even matter at, at this point. Like now he now he is, just wants to fit in. Yes, yeah. fit in. Yeah. yeah, I think that that seamlessly answers, or I guess morphs into the ans- My answer to your question is: I think he's ridiculously good at his job because everyone else around him is a reflection of what he's doing and they're all competing for like basically nothing i mean you know the best business card the best the fisher account but if he was good at his job he would get the fisher account though sure but yeah does the fisher account exist right (laughs) right yeah yeah i think like i think if we like if we think of the book and the movie as a condemnation of the American dream and how we get there, then he has achieved the American dream, which means he's been successful. Like he's done everything that people have told him to do. And kind of like Matt said, he is bored. And I think that's what makes him act out. So yeah, I I agree with the fact that they could have really easily taken out that line about his parents giving him everything. Because I just... I don't think that he would have acted out as much maybe if that were true or or I don't know. But part of me thinks that he's so well respected not because of his job but just of like how he looks just like his physical appearance because some background Christian Bale as he's wont to do complete physical transformation he was a child star growing up but wasn't in a lot of big movies. He, well, he's in a Spielberg movie as a kid, but then after that, there's Newsies and, and not much. But he was vying for this role for a while. It was going to go to Leonardo DiCaprio, but 
apparently Gloria Steinem talked him out of the role because he's like, this would be career suicide. That was right after Titanic. Right. So that it was Leo's job for the taking. He had just done Titanic. And so she went to Leo. I'm like, look, like you'll lose 98% of your followers if you do this movie. Yeah. And so then it went to it went to Christian, which was like the best thing that could ever happen to this movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he makes it. He makes it. I don't. I don't think that anyone could have done it the way that he did it because it is so comical, and I'm shocked to be saying that. But it was so like this movie was really fun. I hate that I'm saying that, but like, I just well, truly like I was laughing. I was meditating on a lot of stuff, and I really had fun watching it. That's so. that's the mm-hmm. triumph of the movie. I yeah. think the biggest difference between the book and the movie is that the movie is fun and it's brisk. It's yeah. like... I was going to say, if I had read this book first, I, I would... And then I heard a movie was coming out, I would be like, this is going to be the worst movie ever made. How would they make a movie yeah. out of this? And I would have never seen it. So, yeah, thank goodness I, I watched the movie first because... If it had been the other way around, I don't know, Laura, what, what were you thinking the movie was going to be like? Because I can't, like, reading that book, I'm trying to like, oh, how would you make this into a movie? <laughs> well, that's why I, kept, I literally kept asking Danny, like, you like this movie? I literally kept, I like kept checking in with him. And I was like, you, Matt and Tim, I've heard multiple times you talk about this movie. Like, I don't understand that. Like, I'm just yeah. confused. Like, can it's- you explain to me? And he was like, just wait, like, just... It's really different from the book. That's all I'm going to say. And I read a lot online about how Brett Easton Ellis and everyone else was like, you can't make a movie out of this. He was not thinking of this being a commercial success when he wrote it. He was not thinking about an adaptation at all. And I think that's what's so mind-blowing about how successful this movie is. Because I don't read this book and see that you could make anything out of it other than like, you know, like a porn or... (laughs) Or like a, a trashy slasher. Exactly. And like, that's what's so interesting though. Like at the very end, it turns into a slasher film, but it's, it's almost like a satire of a slasher yeah. film. Like when he, like Matt mentioned earlier, when he's running down the hallway with his sneakers on, I was like, this is fucking hilarious. Because if you think about it, he's probably wearing the sneakers because he doesn't want to get his feet like dirty, dirty or bloody <laughs> or um you know like mess up a pedicure that he just got like that's fucking funny like you have a sociopathic serial killer who's so obsessed with his looks that he won't like run barefoot like that yeah or when he's trying to like eat the escort's leg and she kicks him he's like not the face he's like so yeah like that's that's so funny and i think that's like that was my doorway into understanding and like a, at least appreciating the book. Again, I don't think that the book is perfect. I think it should have been maybe cut in half. Yeah. I think the point was made by that the half point where I stopped. <laughs> and I didn't feel like I had to go for it further. But here's the thing. Here, here's what I really like about it too. When I was reading this interview or this article written by BEE, um, Brett Easton Ellis, I'm just going to shorten it. He didn't confirm that this character is not a real person but he did kind of say like even for example he mentioned that the address that Patrick Bateman gives as his address does not exist in Manhattan like it it literally could not exist because it it goes like the number goes too far up in the um street and I I think like 
him explaining it as an amalgamation of what happens when everybody's trying to like fit in and achieve this American dream that's not achievable and subjugates poor people and people who don't fit into like white American culture and stuff like that. Like when he started talking about how it's just an amalgamation of all that, I was like, okay, it's not real. It, it kind of like, it kind of made it okay almost in my head that these things were so extreme because I don't know. I, I I think like the going back and forth, the fighting, like, is this reality? Is this not reality? was like too, it was like too real for me. But yeah. then when he kind of like cracked that open and was like, realistically, like, come on, this really, it's not real. Just pay attention well, to the message. That kind of changed my brain a little bit. That's a, that's a really interesting question. And I'm interested. So Matt and Tim, what murders do you think were real? If any, Tim, go ahead. Ooh, well, so the, the question of, did it happen or did it not happen? I, by the end of the movie, after after watching it several times, I came to the conclusion: okay, no, it's not real. It's all in his head. And the reason, because when he starts shooting and the the police car blows up, I was yeah. like, okay, now like that's not. He looks at the gun. Just, he's like, Wait. yeah. He's like, what? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So I, I was like, okay, no. Uh, it, it, you know, I don't think it's. Do I think he's maybe killed someone? Like maybe the the homeless guy? That could happen, right? But like everything, the last rampage he goes on, and the helicopters chasing him. No, I think that's all in his head, uh, for sure. I I would have liked more ambiguity. I think at the end, I would have liked to have been like, ooh, like could it have happened? Whereas like, no, no, clearly it's all in his head. And and the when I watch this with the lens of okay, I need to compare it to the book. The the scene where. Uh, his assistant is going through his journal and seeing like a lot of the killings that even happened in the book were in those sketches that he's doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, he's probably imagining this and it's coming out onto the paper there. That's kind of like what did it for me of thinking, okay, this, this, this isn't real. So, so yeah, I don't think he did any of it. I'll probably say he probably didn't do any of it and he's just going insane. So I guess uh, for me, in the movie, what I like to think is that everything happened for real. And at the end, he has an acute onset of psychosis and then that kind of pushes him over the top. And so he's been he's been escalating in his violence up, upwards and upwards to a point where he now the ATM is talking to him and his gun is acting like a tank. Uh, but before that, it's not that everything is fake. I would say everything happened. He probably did commit a lot of murders, but everything is probably exaggerated in his mm -hmm. mind and and in the book i think i was i've confirmed that in my mind in that at first while reading the book i was devastated like oh my god this book is going to lead me down a trail where everything is in his head and everything is fake and this is just the worst i don't want i don't want that to be the case and what i think i just i think the book probably from confirmation bias in my mind said there's some truth to everything he did but there's probably a lot of exaggeration going on and so you know the scene that kind of confirmed that for me was when he had the two prostitutes in his room and he was just like expounding on how he was able to satisfy them over and over and over again. Right. And so I'm like, okay, that's probably not happening. So I'm, I don't have no doubt that you have had prostitutes up in here and you've probably killed people, but the level of uh, gruesomeness and the level of, uh, of what a stud you are has probably been, been hyped up a bit. And I, I should have, I should have uh, asked before I gave my answer because I'm influenced by the movie. I don't know how the book ends. So what was that final scene in the book? Because I, that final, the final scene in the movie was two thirds of the way through the book. 
and then he just goes, oh, goes, didn't, goes didn't on make about it his that day. far then. <laughs> yeah, I think where the book crosses the line is when Patrick may or may not have killed a little boy at oh, a zoo. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Why? Jesus Christ. That's where I started gagging, and I like even like I was talking to my comment. Hey, hey, come on, come on, come on, come on. Right, <laughs> like a. As like a new father, yeah. As yeah. a new father, and he like just like dispassionately like takes a little kid in the zoo. Like, nope, nope. Come on, mm, buddy. No, don't yeah. do this. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. I I think it's interesting that we all kind of had lines. I fell away the I fell away first, <laughs> but in my head, I think I think I should kind of clarify what I think because I guess it makes it easier for me to think that it's all not real. But when it comes to Paul Allen, I feel like that was a murder that he committed for sure. It's at least in the movie. I think that that's fairly confirmed that he really did that. I can see that he really did that. And then I also feel like I don't care about it, which I think is interesting because Jared Leto is number, he does a great job with that character. I think it's a really funny depiction, depiction yeah. of exactly what Patrick is, but he has less of a filter. He's like not as good at filtering that out and hiding it from other people. So it's funny that I have a huge issue with like most of the murders, except for that one, where I'm like... <laughs> and I something that I think is really funny, something that I just, even in the book I was laughing at, is when everybody misidentifies everyone else. Like, oh, that's Harry whatever. Marcus Haldstram. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's super funny. And I think it's really sophisticated what they do at the end when he confronts his lawyer, whether or not it's his lawyer or not, in the end of the movie. And he's like, I love that message. Like, he completely confesses and he's like, that's not possible. I had lunch with Paul you know, twice in London, like 10 days ago. And you're like, that's so funny because he probably didn't have lunch with right. Paul. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's hilarious. Yeah, it, that's such a great joke. It's, it's textbook setup and payoff because throughout the whole yeah. movie, people are confusing other people, yeah. you know, for sure. So it makes complete sense when the lawyer says, no, I ate, ate with him in London. You're like, Probably maybe not. you didn't like <laughs> you don't really know. And, yeah. and therein lies the point. It was like a culture where everyone it, yeah. it was all about image and names and reservations. And you didn't really focus on the person. Uh, yeah. It was just it's just the label. So, yeah, my interpretation and I go back and forth on this. Uh, it might be a cop out to say this, but at some viewings, I think either all the murders happened except for Paul Allen, which he's Paul Owen in the book, or none of the murders happened, but the only one that actually happened was Paul Allen. Depending on my mood or when I'm watching it or, or whatever, that's my view. I think Paul Allen is one of like the few people to ha have a reason to kill, other than like his own uh, biases, like homophobia, xenophobia, all that stuff. I feel like the presence of William Defoe's character also confirms it's not totally made up. Yeah, he wouldn't yeah. make up a detective coming messing with his day. Well, perhaps... Perhaps he did take a trip to London and Patrick Bateman heard that and just was like, maybe what if like he's gone forever? And like, what if I killed him? And, you know, it's like and that that psychosis forms like his murderous thoughts become something he believes in. And that, that's what makes him nervous when William yeah. Defoe is in. That's that's what uh, I kind of was thinking about was like, because when you're watching those scenes, you're like, does Willem Defoe know that he's. He did it. He killed him. And my yeah. thinking was, okay, maybe he's taking that and then or creating this scenario in his in his mind of, of how he would do it. And it's aligning with what Willem Dafoe is following up on. 
Sure. Like the, the, when I say that because he shows the Huey Lewis in the news, right? Like ever heard yeah. of him? He's like, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, huh, all right. Maybe right. That, like there, maybe there's, that. that would be such a random coincidence. I think that's the beauty in Willem Dafoe's character. I didn't know he was in this movie and that was a real treat. I love him. And we, Always good to see Dafoe. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we were lucky enough to see him in person when we saw The Lighthouse uh, pre-COVID. Have, he, have either of you seen The Lighthouse? Not yet, no. no. Oh my God, now that's a trip. That's really Matt, don't, <laughs> don't watch that on Painkillers. <laughs> well, no, no. But yeah, I think the layers of his performance sell the fact that Paul Allen might not have died or he's truly just missing. I mean, he really layers in like, does he know something? Is this, is he just kind of being blind? Is he really smart? Um, That's a great performance. I also feel like that performance and that character, plus all of our, you know, our back and forth about what murders did happen or didn't. I feel like that's why it's impossible to call this book poorly written or like poorly conceived and the movie poorly conceived. Like, I don't think that you have a total argument that these aren't interesting ideas. And like, that's what I think is really interesting about criticisms when people are just like panning this book and saying like, this is the worst written book. Freddie Snellis has no business writing. Like, I don't think you can argue that because this is really like, it's a smart way to write someone who's not a reliable narrator. So I've got yeah. uh, two points on that. The first point of which is to, uh, to listening America here, you know, Matt, Matt is not on painkillers just for the sake of being on painkillers. So I'm not, a, I'm not an addict, right? I recovering from surgery. Uh, I'll be out painkillers soon. Uh, but the point I do want to make is that after doing a bit of research into the making of this film, every scene that William Defoe is in was filmed at least three times. Mm. And then the first take William was prescribed to act as if he knew that he was guilty in the next take, he was prescribed to act as if he did not think Patrick was guilty. And in the third take, he was told to act as if he didn't know. And so then they just like shuffled those in to the deck over the course of the movie, which made Willem Dafoe's character pretty interesting because you had all these different mm-hmm. uh, emotions that they just kind of threw in there to, to throw the, the viewer off. That's fabulous. That's and awesome. it also interestingly aligns with how Brett Easton Ellis wrote the book because he wrote this over a period of a few years and he said in an interview with Larry King that sometimes he was writing it like everything happened and then sometimes he would write it like everything was not real so that's I love that that totally mirrors how the movie was shot and and edited eventually yeah because when when I first watched this I didn't appreciate Willem Dafoe's character because he only has about three or four scenes and it kind of leaves open-ended. But then years later, talking on this podcast, I realized he's there to add to the suspicion of maybe this is all in his head or, or maybe Paul Allen is is missing and he only killed some of the people. So yeah, I definitely gained an appreciation for his character after the fact, for sure. But William Defoe, great performance. I should say every performance in this movie is spot on. The casting is is great we want to shout out our boy justin thoreau oh, who, yeah. who we love absolutely uh, and josh wore, lucas too yeah. yeah yeah he was great yeah i don't know the the other guy's name uh but he, he was good as well but yeah <laughs> uh, yeah, who is, who is he? yeah whatever uh 
I guess that's the point. You, you're not yeah. supposed to know his name, really. But Justin Thoreau wore blue contacts for this film. So just to fit in with the other actors, uh, that's a little fun fact there. <laughs> and supposedly this is hasn't been really confirmed, but Christian Bale is stated to have modeled his performance after Tom Cruise. Which is funny because Tom Cruise shows up uh, in was, the book. This I this was like my one note I had was like, what beef did Brett Easton Ellis have with Tom Cruise? Yeah, like, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I, that was that was my note. I was just like, wait a second, why is he why is he making Tom Cruise to be such a that's a jerk? I, I yeah. didn't understand where that was coming from. Yeah, <laughs> I just sort of like yeah, Tom Cruise beef question mark? Right. Yeah, it's in the book, Patrick stumbles into an elevator and Tom Cruise is there. And so they live in the same building and Bateman tries to connect with him. But Tom Cruise is totally just, yes. yeah. That's my other, so reading off. that scene, I was like, okay, something's going on here. Cause clearly he's a sociopath, but at the same time, he wants the recognition and uh, admiration of Tom Cruise and is devastated when he doesn't get it. <laughs> like who is this guy? So that was another, that was another tip off that he's not completely insane. He does have some feelings and he is, he is going through real life. But uh, I would agree on that. Yeah. So, so I guess Tom, Tom Cruise was interviewed by David Letterman and the author just saw it as a sheen of a sheen of a soul. There's a, there's a person there with eyes and a mouth and that person knows what to say and when to smile. And then they walk off stage and there, there's nothing. I don't want to, I don't go too deep on. Yeah. Yeah, According to director Mary Heron, yeah. Bale saw that interview and said, yeah, there's an intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. So that that's the quote. Um, and, I, re- I refuse to believe that. My boy Tom yeah. Cruise would never be like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Tom Cruise, absolute <laughs> madman. Love his movies. But uh, yeah, you can respect the uh, what, what he contributes to cinema. How about that? Um, yeah. yeah, his personal life is a whole other ordeal. Anyways, yeah, let's, let's get into our boy Christian Bale. We've already talked about him Mm. a bit notorious method actor so he's from wales but he stayed in an american accent the entire time during production i only heard his accent slip once and i've never heard this before but it's in the very beginning when he tries to pay the bartender with those two tickets and she says that they don't accept those anymore so if you listen closely he goes I want to stab you to death and play with your blood. And you're like, that's 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 not American. I want to stab you to death, play with your blood. Um, so yeah, but yeah. other than that, iconic. His little dance moves in the uh, Huey Lewis in the News Paul Allen scene. Yeah. Apparently that was improvised on set, and Mary Heron loved it so much, Excellent. so he put that into the yeah his his little moonwalk. Yeah. In the shooting script, it just says that the axe is behind his leg, so Paul Allen doesn't see it. But apparently it was Bale's idea to do that little <laughs> moonwalk. And then, of course, the around, around the world point. Oh, yeah, that's so <laughs> Listeners, you can't see us, but if you've seen the movie, you know what we're talking about. When he points to his sound system, I mean, uh-huh. what... What a move. It's so, so here's a question for you. so joyful. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Here's a question for you, Laura. Is that so? Christian Bale makes Patrick Bateman so sympathetic. He's surprisingly sympathetic. Does that make Patrick Bateman an anti hero or a protagonist or antagonist or a villain? Like, as a lit major, how would you classify him? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. I, I read a little bit about how he was 
the beginning of the anti-hero sociopath like uh what's what's the show dexter Mm. like dexter couldn't have existed if this movie and book didn't exist and i would say that dexter is an anti-hero even though i've never seen the show i think he's like pretty consistently pointed to as the modern anti-hero so just dexter has a has a code to him and like breaking bad has a code like they Breaking Bad, he, he did bad to get money to not to feed his family, but to pay his family while he's going away. And Dexter has a code to him, but there, there's just like no redeeming qualities to this guy. And yet everyone loves him. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know if everybody loves him. Like everybody's competing with each other. And I guess in my head, he's more of an idea. So it's hard to pinpoint him as an anti-hero specifically. Yeah, but like as a viewer though, you liked him. I don't know. I, I mean- I don't know. It's like, it's hard. I didn't like him. It's, it's, you can't identify with him. Right. In any way. So it's really hard to say that he's a protagonist. He goes through all this awful stuff. And at the end of the day, bros like us quote him. And there are clothing lines that are like the Patrick Bateman clothing line. And they just like, if you like what he's wearing in the movie, like here it is. Here's, here's the line. We have all the stuff he mentioned in his opening routine. You have all this clothes really? shop here. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's I've, really I've seen the, uh, the facial treatment line for sure. Yep. Which is wild. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say that people don't like want to live up to his mask I guess, right? Like I know people in my own life who are are very interested and almost obsessive about the way they look. And so that's not like, that's not bad in itself, but obviously like there's so much going on underneath. It almost makes you wonder like what's going on underneath in those people. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the novel was successful in eliciting that feeling of like yeah. questioning those type of people. And I think the movie is too, but you know, it, it has its cake and eats it too by it's like entertaining and you like him, but you also know that it's a like a scathing indictment of people like him. So right. I would say I, I like him, but at, at the same time, I don't condone if he d- did murder anyone. Uh, yeah, Film is Lit is an anti-murder <laughs> podcast. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that's why it's so great. Of what exactly he is, I don't have an answer to that question either. Because he is an anti-hero, but yeah, not not your traditional one. I, I think perhaps a lot of anti-heroes in literature and film were like a reaction to this book of saying like, okay, people like anti-heroes, but they need to have like a, a code guiding them. They need to like know where they stand. Where like the point of American Psycho is that he doesn't really have a stance or like he has all these misguided stances. Yeah, that's that's a good way of thinking about it, because I think in that way, people are more able to stomach the antihero. And the huge criticism about this book and movie is that why would you want to watch it if it's just all terrifying and sick? I get that, but I think it does make it a stronger piece. That's why I feel like I I said I might have a couple of hot takes because I think it does make a a stronger piece that it doesn't look away from a lot of this stuff. And while I think the book went too far, as we've already said, it crossed a lot of lines. I think it's really interesting to read a book that's not about a redeemable character at all. And I think it just makes it clear that 
uh, Brett Easton Ellis wanted to indict all of these ideas that were corrupting American society and still do to a certain extent. Like, again, I think it's really interesting to have this conversation about how this connects to modern social media influencers, because I think there are a lot of crossover concepts. Like the scene in the alley where he confronts the unhoused man of that, how he's saying like to him, it's just like, oh, just get a job. And of course it's it can be more complicated than that. And we're still dealing with that attitude. Yeah, a lot of people still hold yeah. that attitude. Yeah. It's held as uh, relevance for sure. And even more so in the social media age. Yeah. I want to get into these hot takes. Yeah. But yeah, more <laughs> hot takes there, things. Laura. Here's, uh, here's where you cut in some, some music in a yeah. quick theme song. Yeah. It's Laura's hot takes. <laughs> go. Here, I'm going to do that right now. And go. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, I I think it was just a hot take that I wasn't going to say that the book isn't absolutely irredeemable. And I really enjoyed the movie. Those were my two big takes because that is a hot take for for at least, at least for someone who identifies as a feminist, because I really was like coming into this movie, assuming I was not going to like it at all. And I I understand the argument that, you know, I, I can't really tell anybody to read this. I feel uncomfortable talking about it when if someone asks me if, they, if I would suggest it, I would say like, well, full disclosure, I didn't finish it. So I couldn't even fully tell you to or not to read it. But again, I just I found reading what Brett Easton Ellis had to say about it really interesting. And he was talking about how this is really interesting because he does also mention Huey Lewis in the news in the book. And Brett Easton Ellis was talking about how he wrote this in a period of his life where he felt kind of caught between trying to be an adult and growing out of, you know, younger adolescence and trying to fit in and trying to be successful in the 1980s and 1990s and how like he thought of this book as kind of a backlash of like trying so hard to fit in that you lose sight of what you're trying to fit into. And like, eventually, if you're trying so hard to creep to fit in, then like psychosis is going to creep in because you're trying to mute all the things that make you an individualist. I don't know, like, I think that's an interesting concept. So I, I don't know, like, yeah, I think I'm talking a lot. No, 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 I'm no. Sorry. <laughs> um, I think the book would have been great, as we've already said, if it was just cut down significantly. Or reading passages of the book is fun, but I just kept on spacing out through. <laughs> it, yeah, famously, I think after he, in the book, he kills Bethany. He hits her with a mace and then eats her fingers or tries to eat her fingers. There's this whole long diatribe that's four pages long about Whitney Houston and just her whole (laughs) body of work. And on this film and a lot of other sponsors like artists and clothing lines, they went to the production company and said, like, you can't feature us in this movie. We don't want our image tainted. We know that we were mentioned in the book, but... Yeah, in in 2000, all these companies were not not open to it. And doesn't that just prove that there is a lot to be said about this? Ex- book? Exactly. That's that the thing. Like the fact that they didn't want to be yeah. in this proves Brett Easton Ellis's point. Yeah, and they're defending their image of yes. Being- the image of the successful Wall Street businessman. Yeah, there was more 
scenes where he mentions Whitney Houston in the movie that were, were cut out. And then also the line where the prostitute is in bed and touches Patrick's wrist mm-hmm. in the book. He, in the book, he says, don't touch the Rolex. In the movie, it's don't touch the watch. So it's like stuff like that throughout the whole movie. I'm surprised they could even get Genesis in there. Like maybe Phil Collins is just super <laughs> yeah. chill and was just like, hell yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. But yeah. Any, pr- but big, that, so say, any press is good press, right? Yes. But Apple yeah. does that. So like Apple, I guess if yes. you're a villain in a movie, you can't have an Apple, right? Yeah. That's I've still, heard that too. Wait, what? That's real? Yeah, that's real. Yeah. Oh, I don't like knowing this now. That's all I'm going to be looking for. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yep. Sorry. That's a big yeah. part about studying film is you ruin yeah. them for yourselves. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no yeah, better, it's just... No one better have androids in Dune coming up. They'll be pretty upset. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh so boy. Dune. Dude, yeah, don't get me started on yeah, Dune. Sorry, sorry. That was... <laughs> I, I, was, I was pretty shocked at how, um, how many direct references they did take from the book, like, into the movie. Like, not only the scene, but, like, the exact lines. Exact dialogue, now, like yeah. the yeah the 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 same exact dialogue, and I was like, huh, oh, interesting. And I found myself smiling, like reading the book, thinking about the scenes of the movie. And then I check out for half an hour as they tried to get a reservation somewhere, um, right? And check back in. They go, are they still talking about this? Okay, but yeah, that was that was interesting. They're like, I mean, they they did such a good job at adapting the movie uh, to something enjoyable, but also taking direct lines from the book. Kind of like in, so that, these, in these big scenes. That was a point I'd written down was that the dialogue from the book to the movie was like verbatim for a solid chunk of the movie. But, and, and Dan, I don't know what the correct term is, but the, the directors or the screenwriters did just such a fantastic job of melding everything in the book into a short, concise, and entertaining movie. Whereas when the three of us are talking about The Martian, The Martian, the directors or screenwriters, when they're writing the script for the movie, they would just lop out big chunks of the movie and just throw them away to cut down the time. Whereas for American Psycho, they actually did a pretty creative job of melding characters, melding scenes, condensing multiple parts into one to get the point across, all while using the same dialogue, which I thought was just, they did a fantastic job of that. Yeah, the specifically the pages and pages where he explains his morning routine that scene in the movie is beautifully done. You get the point. Right. Yeah. You know, it's brilliant. The set is brilliant. And I think you're right. Like they did a great job setting that stuff up. And it kind of comes back throughout the movie. Like there are a few times where he does that, but it's not every other scene. Right. right. But just like combining characters and combining victims. And they just did a really good job of squeezing as much into the movie as possible without making it seem overweight or too dense. Yeah. No. Yeah, is it- Hour 41? Yeah, just with credits. Yeah, so it's perfectly paced. I think if it was a minute more, it maybe would have gone on too long. But in the book, for every single scene, and when we say every single scene, we mean every single scene, Patrick Bateman will point out what everyone is wearing or uh, where they are and uh, what where they've been, what watch they have on or who they're dating. It's and for everything. And I, the point is that you can't figure out who's who. It all blends together. But that may after be a while when, okay, this guy knows every brand of every clothing, accessory, what have you, but he forgets the name of the movie Tom Cruise is in. Like, that doesn't check out. Something's fishy. Mm. That's true. <laughs> I don't know what the, uh, the deeper meaning is there, but that's like, come on. 
He w- did he do that on purpose? Maybe he doesn't like Tom Cruise too. I suppose if you were to dissect that, if he was in the movie, then you could be darn sure that he knew every title and line in that movie. But because he wears all the clothes that all his buddies wear, he's intimately familiar with all those clothes. Mm. And he probably doesn't care about, well, he cares about Top Gun, but he doesn't care that much about. Let's discuss this for the next hour about how he would (laughs) be if he were in Tom Cruise movies. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it is, that's an interesting point, though, because he is such a narcissist. Like, we haven't really talked about how, I I mean, in so many words, we've talked about it, but I think that's, like, that's the interesting thing. Like, he's such a narcissist that that colors what he thinks he can do and can't do. Like, when he's dragging the body out of the apartment, like, he's, there's blood coming out of the bag, and <laughs> he's literally such a narcissist that he thinks he's going to get away with anything. Like, even blood coming out of a body bag basically and that's something that i uh appreciate about both the book and the movie and i i'm glad that the book backed up what the movie put out there was that in the 90s new york city namely manhattan real estate was so hot that real estate agents would much rather just take care of dead bodies on their own as opposed to alert the authorities because that makes their job easier it keeps the valuation of the real estate up and you know they don't scare away potential buyers because there's a murder on the loose Oh, interesting. So that that leads to the ambiguity of the end of maybe that realtor saw the bodies and Paul Allen's. She is acting sus. Like, yeah, Yeah. I don't think that's an interpretation of what Patrick is experiencing. I think we're supposed to pick up on the fact that she's definitely covering something. up. And in the book, they only further that to suggest that she's in on it. And this happens more than you think. And she's now a pro at not only selling houses, but cleaning up dead bodies. Interesting. Okay. The first time I saw that, I was like, okay, if you're a single woman realtor and there's a guy wearing like a mask scoping out the place, you wouldn't be a little like on your toes? Being like, uh, who are you? Why are you in my house? (laughs) Well, she's selling it. I'd say the first time that happened, she probably got freaked out, but she is... She's a karate master. She she's like she's good at her job, and she wants to sell these things as much as possible. And so no, she's gotten very good yeah. at cleaning up dead bodies. At cleaning up dead or, bodies. Okay, I'm on board. Right, I'm on yeah. board with that now. Or <laughs> perhaps that leads into my theory that the only real murder is Paul Allen. So he was using his apartment, but there are no bodies in there. Yeah, that's so. see. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good point because. This has totally opened my mind to this new possibility. She It also makes the casting crucial because I think she's an older woman on purpose. Like she is experienced and she knows that a dead body or any kind of crime will devalue an apartment. And so even if there had been one body, which or any evidence, like when um, Patrick Bateman comes into Paul's apartment, he's not wearing gloves. And that surprised me because I thought I assumed that he would be extremely careful going into somebody's house that we'd have no business being in like his room. He touches his drawers and the light switches. So I thought that was like pretty careless, but it would make sense if he wasn't thinking about that and he left some kind of evidence and maybe like blood somewhere. And then she became aware of that and was totally able to cover it up. Cause I, I also thought that like when he walked in and they were acting like nothing had happened and there was paint everywhere and stuff that, that was further evidence that he had not, everything was in his mind. But this kind of opens me up to the possibility that <laughs> she did know. And there, she's just like, right. you can leave, don't come back, and I won't say anything. Yeah, and, and that was something that both Matt and Tim had told me about that 
type of take about how it, everything might have happened, but these people are so focused on labels and image that yeah. they covered it up. Like something I was looking out for this time around that I'd never seen before was at the very end when the lawyer, uh, Harold Carnes, when he says, that's not possible, I had dinner with Paul Allen two weeks ago in London, his performance is such that maybe he didn't actually have dinner with him but he already told people that he had that at this point he was like too, he was in too deep. And now he's just like continuing the lie saying like, nope, that's not possible. I had dinner with him. And you can see kind of a hesitancy in his face, that actor. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. It's just so well directed. These little performances, I yeah, think. Cause the way I read that performance was like, he was like saying like, I know that that guy wasn't in London and shut the fuck up like stop yeah, yeah. talking i think like, i think we're oh, yeah, in yeah. agreement like, yeah yeah like he there are two possibilities like either he really thought that he was with paul allen and he had misidentified him like everyone else had in the movie or he was like dude i'm your lawyer like shut the fuck up you didn't yeah you didn't see anything <laughs> what's your what's your guys take on the obsession with reservations and restaurants that all these guys have well, it's all about who's who and, and where you are dining. Everyone's focused on dinners, but nothing actually happens at these dinners. They're just people talking about where they're going to eat next or, or who they've seen. I almost feel like it acts as their alibi that they are working. Mm, right? That's like, interesting. Yeah. Because if, if you say like, oh, I saw this person meeting with this person at Escatage or whatever, one of those. Espas. Espas, thank you. <laughs> then it's like, well, yeah, I met them. We we were having a business meeting. Like that's your alibi. Rather than working in the office, mm -hmm. you can say like, well, we met and did business during a working dinner or something. Yeah. So the more visible you are, the more like likely your claim is that you were yeah. working. Certainly as a status symbol, if you could say you could get into a certain place. But I have a theory that Dorcia is not real. Or something like that. So it's in. It's not real for Patrick, or it's not real for anybody, and they all are trying to get into this imaginary place for for everyone <laughs> because they the theme of trying to get a reservation is so prevalent that th there has to be like a top dog that like no one can get to, like a a, a pipe dream. So yeah, I think I don't know. That's like that's a joke on everybody. I think that's really funny. Like right. one person sets up a a hotline. And like spreads the information that it's yeah. a really popular I mean, restaurant place. <laughs> I, this theory is a little shaky because other people talk about it. I, I'm just thinking about it right now, but maybe maybe if I think about it a little bit more, I'll have some more supporting points. Because they physically right? they physically go there in the book, right? Oh gosh, I don't remember. They don't, I, I think they don't they, make it to to he, Dorcia. He they, they, they he, he he brings uh what's her name Bethany to Barracuda and tells her that it's Dorcia, but she's too high to know where she is. Doesn't he take Gene? No, he takes Gene there, and they pretend to be another couple. They sit down, and the other oh. couple shows up. Was that Dorcia? That that does happen. I just don't remember what restaurant it is. I thought it was Dorcia. I thought he was like because I remember in the book, obviously in the movie he calls off the date before they even go anywhere. But in the book, he's like all in, and they go there, and he takes a look at the Major D book and sees another name. And they sit down. He's just like, ah, all right, we're doing this. I don't know. I, I forget I, if it's Dorcia or something else. but I do remember that. I still don't know if it's mm -hmm. Dorcia. 
I love the idea of it being a just like this imaginary like if Paul just, Allen just said it yeah. one time they're all just like well we got to go to Dorcia too <laughs> yeah I don't really have any evidence other than that that it is imaginary but again I like yeah I just thought Before. of it but maybe maybe it's that <laughs> um actually so we were just talking about Gene so I I want to know if like why you all think that he doesn't kill Gene his secretary because he has her right where he wants her right in the mm. movie. Right. So why does he make the decision, literally when he's confronted with the decision to kill her or not to kill her, he says, you should leave because I'm, otherwise I'm going to do something bad to you. I guess he sees Jean every day, so she's more than nothing to him. Whereas every other floozy that he happens to bring by the apartment, he doesn't, he feels zero, con- like, so he, clearly he's about to kill her. So he, he's still a sociopath. But he has a flickering moment of uh, a, a touch with reality. It's like, hey, this is Gene. Like, <laughs> even I have limits here. So let's not let's not touch Gene. That's his Dexter code. Is is Gene? <laughs> yes. And then in the movie, he gets a call from Evelyn, played by Reese Witherspoon, one of her first roles. And I think the call from Evelyn is a reminder. It's like, okay, Evelyn is someone who I don't care about. Like, yeah, someone who's meaningless to me. But then that's a wake-up call for him being like, okay, Jean is someone who I value at least a little bit. Because she does things for me. Yeah. Or he doesn't want to, like, destroy the innocence or, or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, he, yeah, d- yeah. he doesn't detest her. And I would, say, I would say, had I not read the book, he that maybe he only really murders those people that he feels that he's superior than which you could argue that he feels he thinks he's superior than everyone but in the book like he goes after former harvard girlfriends like of any class right so mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason his constant contact with gene has made her out to be more of a human to him and so he demonstrates restraint interesting so he does have a little bit of a moral code just a little bit <laughs> just a little bit he doesn't kill his secretaries yeah, yeah. So I, I asked that question on the reservations because I was in my mind, I was just thinking like, like why are they, this guy, without exaggeration, a third, at least a third of this book is just them talking about clothes and or reservations mm-hmm. without, without exaggeration. So why the need to do that? And so I'm sure I was trying to think back to, I never lived this life. I guess the closest I came to living this life was my three and a half years in consulting when, you know, my life wasn't my own and my week wasn't my own and my schedule you know wasn't up to me really demanding job 100 percent travel so my thought was why are these guys so obsessed with reservations and i guess i might have been too in that if you break down these guys day and well in walter bankers they work harder than you they work harder than me they work harder than everyone i mean they get a bad rap but they do work hard and so if you break down their day okay let's let's be generous and we'll say they get six hours of sleep a night that's more than they get but let's be generous and then they probably work a minimum of 12. 12 is a short day for them. 14 hour, a 14-hour workday for them is more than likely it. So you have a six hours of sleep, 14 hours of work. That's 20. Now you have four hours to, le- to be left with. And in the morning, you know, between shower and breakfast and getting to the office, we'll say 90 minutes. So waking up, showering, getting dressed, doing the whole routine, walking through downtown Manhattan, 90 minutes. And then they also have an hour for the gym in there somewhere too, right? And then that leaves an hour and a half left of their 24-hour day, which is dinner. And like that is the 90 minutes of their day that is theirs is dinner, right? So which is kind of explains why dinner reservations are so important to them because it's the only 90 minutes that they, they can control. And I, so I guess I just was trying to think, why would they be so keen on that? Why a reservation? And it's just because I, I get it, right? After a long, hard day or a long week, 
if you can't get into the restaurant that you want to get into because you don't have a reservation, then that just ruined the one segment of your day, the, the 90 minutes of your day that aren't your own. And so I was just trying to think if you guys had any thoughts as to why these guys are so keen on reservations. And I heard you guys had a few thoughts on, well, if you're able to get a reservation at Dorcia, then that makes a status status symbol. I would agree. I would just say also, it's probably the, the only time of their day they get to kind of do what they, they want to do. Like be a human. Yeah. Right. And enjoy something around them. Right. I guess since we only see it through the lens of Patrick, who we explicitly see don't work, I didn't yeah. get the impression. At least I don't think Mary Heron and her co-writer thought Wall Street workers worked that hard or were deserving of their own time. Um, so I that, is, that is exactly the sentiment I had going into when I left my engineering job and went to business school and okay, here's, here's a bunch of wall street bros who are going to come down and, you know, they just get by because they're wall street bros. But yeah, like, no, they, these guys, they get a bad rap, but they will outwork you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so my, my assumption, which I think is correct because I still am in touch with a few of these guys is that they go all out for dinner because that is the only time of the day that's theirs. Interesting. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Really, anybody? I know one person who works on Wall Street, but he really—I think he really just trades, like for his own personal gain. Like he doesn't work for a company, I don't think. So that's interesting because I don't think I've ever had a lot of interaction with people like that. Because I'm from the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, only ever seen it in movies where they, yeah, yeah, mo- <laughs> yeah mo- movies yeah. about Wall Street or about greed. So yeah. you don't really see the. So that that notion, which spurred my question as to true or false does patrick bateman work hard or is he good at his job and i guess those are two different questions right he probably doesn't work hard but he probably is also still good at his job i like to think so yeah Mm -hmm. or i think he used to work hard and is good at his job but now he's at a place where all he cares about is just going to fancy restaurants with beautiful women i think yeah i think yeah i think a lot of it too is just like chasing a different this is gonna sound super cheesy but like chasing a different high like looking for something that they've never experienced before. And so like the craziness of the menu sometimes is a little funny, like pretty oh, comical. What was like, that line? Oh, the Justin Thoreau says the menus in Braille. Yeah. That <laughs> sounds funny. Like, yeah, I think, and like the, it's sad, but when Patrick takes Paul to that Mexican restaurant, that's like clearly supposed to be a dump and he's like talking it up, like, Oh, this is like, the next greatest thing and he's talking about what's on the menu you want to hear the specials now if you want to keep your spleen <laughs> yeah they're so awful to work in there. <laughs> but yeah like they're i mean that's obviously a joke because he's not trying to take paul anywhere fancy but yeah yeah I don't know, just like trying to experience something new that they've never experienced before and then like trying to top it and top it and top it and top yeah it. <laughs> Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, actually, speaking of the menus, this is a little detail that I noticed, but in the very beginning, when you see the drops of jam, because you find out that it's they're plating a nice meal rather than it being blood drops, that really reminded me of Promising Young Woman. Have either of you seen that movie? I'm not. No. Oh, it's Definitely really, recommend really that. good, but hmm. there's a part where you think that something dripping is blood and it's not, and I was like, ooh. Well, it's also like the opening of Dexter. Oh, is I haven't seen that. Oh, him, that's true. Him cooking, yeah. And you, it could be one thing, Let's could be another. Hmm. Yeah. I also think that the book does mimic Wall Street in that Wall Street is just long, monotonous stretches of time where you just put your head down and just get it done. And so this is not the movie, but the book, I think it is that of 
okay, are we really going to go back through everyone's wardrobe? Like every single person. Okay, so the first chapter, I, I get it. He likes clothes. But no, for all 60-some chapters, every time we met a new person or even a, even a recurring character, first we had to go through what they're wearing. Monotonous, right? And then we had to go through getting reservations every single time. And we had to go through his personal take of all of the, the artists like Whitney and Phil, just like super monotonous. But what keeps people in Wall Street is not the monotony, but the flashes of brilliance that occur every once in a while, which is, I think, what the book has to keep us around of like, okay, we just went through four chapters where nothing happened. I'm so bored. And then, oh, my God, he's using a nail gun in his own apartment and then eating some eyeballs <laughs> like this. That's nuts. I guess I'm going to keep reading. And then we go another four hours, nothing happens, <laughs> nothing happens. And then I feel like that is Wall Street. So I think that's probably huh. a, a decent microchasm of, uh, of what it is to be a banker. Yeah. It's like uh. they, you always hear Wall Street is cutthroat and Patrick Bateman is literally cutting throats. <laughs> it's like stuff like that. It's like taking that metaphor and making it literal if you believe that his uh, killings are real. Yeah. You're getting deep, Matt. I had a conversation. He said he, he was going to wing it and didn't do any research, and that is complete BS because he has some I've deep been si- I've been sitting here in the chair for the last <laughs> yeah. three days. Man. When have either of you – yeah. Uh, either, you, um, neither of you have ever winged anything. It's not the, <laughs> not the Gaylord way. Um, um, I have a question for you guys. Do you, do you think he's – I was going to say, I had a point where I was like, is Patrick Bateman gay or not? What do you, what do you think? I definitely had that uh, that thought when upon my first viewing of the movie, and then it was going through my head in the book too. And I just I'd say, given it was a 1991 book, probably not in the in the eyes of the author, and probably not at the movie either. I just I think he was so taken aback that this guy was gay and he didn't know it that he was. I mean, because he's a terrible person, disgusted that this guy was gay, but also disgusted in himself that he didn't see it. Interesting. Yeah, I I'm not familiar w- enough with the story to have thought about that or picked up on that. But also now that I, now that I'm thinking more about it, so a terrible person. So he's gay, and I'm disgusted by it. B, I'm disgusted that I didn't pick up on it because I'm the best thing ever. C, you're so you're telling me that this gay guy has the single most beautiful person that I know, in in my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. So like the one girl that he covets the most is this gay guy's girlfriend. And so that those three things probably makes him hate this guy the most, which typically when someone is irrationally fearful or hateful of the, uh, of someone who's gay, then that usually suggests that they might be gay themselves. But I'm not, I guess I'm not seeing that this time. Hmm. Yeah. I've never picked up on it i thought perhaps he's asexual and the only person he truly loves or likes is himself for instance with the scene with the two prostitutes he's looking at the mirror the whole time uh so funny yeah yeah don't stare at it yeah did they have that in the book or is that just the movie no it was in the book book. yeah Yeah. in the book he looks in the mirror like the whole time he's having sex yeah huh I would, he, they didn't have like the two finger point at the camera scene in the book, but it was it was in the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean the scene with Lewis is is the obvious one where it made me start to think. But then, okay, it seems like he's clearly homophobic, which could be a sign. Um, also, how many guys does he kill versus? Women. Um, there's a homeless guy. There's uh, Paul, Paul Allen. Allen. Paul Allen. Yeah. I don't know. I was just I was starting to think about it, and 
curious what your guys' thoughts were. That went through my head deep south, very quickly. Yeah, I think obsessed with fashion. Obsessed with true. Trump. <laughs> it, it is interesting though. So there's a bunch of references in this book that are still relevant today, right? So he mentions Trump a bunch. He uh, there's a really interesting scene where he I, I don't think it was a Chinese, but it was like like he didn't want to work with Japanese banks, so they would just steal all the patents, which is just like a weirdly applicable today because you see a bunch of patent suits going back and forth between the U.S. and in Eastern Asia, Southeastern Asia. But also, it was very interesting in that there's that scene where he's with you know, his fiance and then their friends. And then I think his fiance brings this very progressive couple, right? So like mm-hmm. a couple that's an artist. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and Patrick knows exactly what to say and how to say it to make them believe that he's not a psychopath. And I feel like that's kind of the zeitgeist of today of everyone has their own thoughts, but in order to not to be labeled a right-wing nut or a left-wing nut, you need to like kind of fall in line and say like certain things in a certain time and you know don't don't deviate from that otherwise you know there's no it's very binary there's no like deeper meaning or deeper definition of a person it's either you're a good person or you're a terrible person if you want to be a good person you have to say these specific things which he shows in the both the book and the movie interesting yeah Yeah. i mean you see that on twitter a lot the more radical you are whether it's right or left you get absolutely skewered and canceled and and it's like conforming to the mass idea and yeah i think bateman is intelligent enough to pick up on the societal norms so he i mean like a true psychopath you can project that even if you don't feel it on the inside or if you don't feel anything on the inside so that and it, so that his buddy Bryce, only he realized that Patrick was absolutely just make, mocking the whole table because he was, I think they mentioned he kind of did a spit take with his drink yeah. when, but Patrick is intelligent enough to not only say all of the, exactly the perfect thing to say to make sure that outwardly he's not viewed as a nut job, but also does so in the most elegant, poetic way possible, where it was even the people at the table in both the movie and the book were commenting on how uh, beautiful and empathetic he is as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is really eloquent. <laughs> Which I wonder if uh, how good of a job Leo would have done. I don't think Leo kind of always never had the he never had the definition to him, right? Yeah. So, so I think uh, Christian was definitely the way to go. Defoe clearly also the way to go, and then Christian's uh, cronies, all of his friends, were just kind of ambiguous enough to be perfect in that okay we all don't know each other's names we're all just bankers we're all just here wearing the same stuff and you know we don't really stand out so i think it was really just a really well done job of filling this this cast agreed yeah Plus I, yeah <laughs> matt, matt ross as uh lewis carruthers was, was but fantastic as well yeah matt matt ross is a film director in addition to being an actor he has made some uh, pretty great f- films like uh, captain fantastic i recommend that it's hard to imagine anyone but Christian Bale in the role. It's just so iconic. And even his cronies, like Justin Theroux, we've mentioned, like just so it's like signature voice, like how to knit, but like you get so tasteful. And it's just like, it's just like, yeah, line after line. It's just perfectly quotable. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting to think about Leonardo DiCaprio in this. I mean, he's such a good actor, like he could possibly have pulled it off. But um, I also read online that, Christian Bale came in to the audition in character and never dropped it. And Brett Easton Ellis was like, stop. I 
really don't like this. Like it's, it really made him uncomfortable, but they cast him anyway. And I think ultimately, like, I think he does like the movie. It, he obviously is aware that it tones down the book a lot, but I appreciate that he appreciates it. Cause it is, yes. Like, you, I, I truly don't think that anyone can argue that this isn't a really good movie. Yeah. That's just me. Yeah. Did, no, I Dan, did it do well uh, financially. Yeah. yeah. Well, so yes, it did. Precisely because they cast Christian Bale, who was a no one, so his salary was so low. Originally, when they were going to cast Leo after Titanic, his salary was going to be $11 million, which was, you know, super, super large. It's large today, but it was large for the year 2000. And then as soon as Leo dropped out and they cast Christian Bale, the salary went down to $1 million. So they had $10 million extra dollars mm. to play with. And the, the overall budget was $15 million. And it ended up grossing $34 million domestic. So yeah, all you need to do is gross around double your budget to be considered a hit. That's kind of the, the scale there. So yeah, it was technically a hit, even though it got uh, $34 million. And then it became one of the highest grossing VHS tapes released well, because cute. it got this huge cult following uh, right. you can imagine from bros uh and <laughs> and so yeah it, it did very well on vhs and then it continues to do well on dvd blu-ray so yes it, it i think a sleeper hit is the more appropriate term for the film hmm. sleeper hit okay i was going to ask if in your research yeah you you found bee's thoughts on the movie like so he was involved in the in the casting in the creation of the movie i know that he was involved in auditioning people but i don't know how much after he was because he didn't write the screenplay right right yeah no the screenplay was written by mary heron the director and then also guinevere turner she plays elizabeth in the movie the the, the not the girl who brother's wife elizabeth who's elizabeth no she uh in the scene with the chainsaw, she plays the first girl who, the, the red ha- redhead. I know, yeah, I don't know how heavily involved he was in the production, but I do know that he liked the movie and said that, quote, it clarified that the novel was a critique of male behavior and it brought the humor to the surface. So he really appreciated that it was a dark comedy and that it critiqued male culture. So that's something that we've said before in this podcast, how we love when an author loves their adaptation yeah, so i just looked up this uh i just googled it because i was interested to see what he really thinks and this apparently this article is published in 2020 i'll start here okay brett easton alice attributes the disconnect between the receptions to his book and harrison's heron's film to you guessed it quote unquote wokeness and then he's <laughs> quoted and says i think that could be the flourishing of wokeness in the culture me being the dark prince of literature, and I write this book that upsets so many people, I need to be put in my place. And what better narrative is there than two women doing it? That's very appealing. So in a way, that's true. I think anyone other than a couple of women handling this may have taken it a little too far, like maybe gone a little bit further with the sexual abuse and stuff like that. Like, I mean, I don't know if it's fair to say it was tastefully done, because it's still pretty violent and the suggestions of violence are pretty intense. And there's fairly graphic, you know, sex scenes, but 
I don't know, like maybe that's just my own bias that I personally feel like they handled it very well, but still kept the, you know, the spirit true to the book, I guess. I don't think they toned it down too much. Yeah, I totally agree. Their, their ability to make a concise, entertaining film while using the same dialogue, but getting all the points in there was pretty impressive. Yeah, and I think that they did a really good job of portraying women who aren't valued by the male actors or the male characters. Like, I didn't feel like they were just sort of thrown in there because they were in the book. Like, I felt really connected to Jean the secretary. I personally, I, I thought the scene where he comments on her clothing, which is in the book as well as the movie, really was poignant because I've actually held two jobs where people, both of my bosses who were male, commented on what I was wearing and how it wasn't appropriate for the office, which I personally disagreed with um, because I think I'm actually like a fairly conservative dresser and I, I don't think that they had any standing to say that I was not dressing appropriately for the office. So I think that scenes like that really reflected how women can be treated by people around them who don't value them. Yeah. I think they walked a, a good line in that way. Yeah, no, tasteful. Yeah, absolutely. Tasteful is definitely appropriate to use. I, I believe. As a man, <laughs> I say tasteful. I approve the word tasteful. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. So let's do final thoughts and final ratings on both the book and the movie. Oh. Tim, kick it oh. off. Final thoughts, final ratings. So, oh, it's, it's interesting, right? Bef- before I read the book, <laughs> four out of four movie yeah, yeah. i feel i I, I, I think i said this uh when i when i saw y'all in in august i was like i'm kind of i feel weird saying how much i love this movie after reading the book but i guess i can also after talking through it i can appreciate how good the movie is for how bad this book is in my in my opinion because I, I did not do all the research like you, Laura. I went and watched Rick and Morty afterwards to try to cheer me back up. <laughs> so I I just, this book for me is a half star out of four because it was just brutally exhausting to read. Put me in a weird funk every time mm-hmm. I did read it. Um, and it was just incredibly boring to me when it wasn't brutally graphic. So I, I did not enjoy really any part of this book besides remembering the scenes of the movie, right? When I was reading or, or listening to that particular chapter. So, um, you know, like the card scene and the, the Paul Allen scene. So I was like, oh yeah, like that was a really fun part of the movie. So I guess in, in that light, I would say probably four out of four for the movie because it is such a memorable movie and a, big part of my my growing up cinematic experience right i think i was like i i I connected with matt on oh but he likes this movie i should probably like this movie too and um i remember him asking me if i like got it at the end and i probably was just like oh yeah totally like i understand exactly what's happening and i had no idea i just thought it was a funny movie so yeah four out of four love the movie Uh, still quote it on a weekly if not daily basis The book I will never revisit. I will never recommend. I will actively suggest you avoid it in the future. So you didn't like the book? <laughs> uh, Matt, go ahead. Of course I agree that the movie is uh, its a staple, right? For for any you know, 18 to 40-year-old white bro, right? It's a staple, right? Mm-hmm. So the quotes are what make it a staple, but the performance is actually like 
a really well done movie by both the actors and the directors. Uh, everything the I'd say the one critique of the movie would be the ending, where they make it ambiguous, but not I guess not enough, right? Like either like be completely ambiguous or leave like a little hint of like what actually happened. Where I just think at the end of this one, they had this like this little diatribe of Patrick Bateman going on in his mind, and then we were just left with a bit of a kind of a not I won't say a cliffhanger, but just uh, wanting more, which you could argue is both a good and a bad for for a movie. So the quote between the quotes and the performance of the actors, I thought the movie was great. As far as the book goes, I'd say it's it's a rite of passage to read this book, I suppose. And I say that because when I heard you two were doing the Films Lit podcast, of course, the first thing I did was like, okay, Google the best books, book to film movies. And this is in every single list, like every single mm. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, which is interesting, right? Because all of us kind of have an allergic reaction to this book, <laughs> but it's just such an allergic reaction that most people don't get through it. And now we have that of like, hey, remember that movie American Psycho? Oh yeah, it was messed up, right? Oh, but did you read the book? And then you can go on and talk about talk about that. And so I'm not I'm not one of those pretentious guys that uh, read. I don't. I'm not a big reader. But uh, but now I can say that yeah I've I've read the American Psycho book and uh, if you want to go down this rabbit hole man we can we can talk about it <laughs> right yeah yeah um, agreed I honestly I'm surprising myself by saying port to port for the movie I'm wow <laughs> I like I just really enjoyed it this is why yeah. I'm marrying her yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> that's I, my gal I feel like I'm turning yeah like. I feel like I'm turning my back on a lot of feminist criticism, but I just don't buy that you can't get the message that abuse toward any kind of person is acceptable. Like it's literally called American Psycho. Like mm-hmm. I yeah. enjoyed the movie so much. And yeah, I guess I I'm in the middle of Matt and Tim. Like I I'm going to give this book like a half star because I don't think I'm ever going to tell anybody to read it. In fact, we were talking to someone this weekend and I told them not to read it. Yeah. Um, so I I think that it contained the kernel that became the movie. Like we talked about the dialogue is in there. So obviously there's a lot to get out of it, but I'm just, I'm never really probably going to finish it. I'm never going to go back to it. Yeah. How about you? Yep, I'm echoing what Matt and Tim said, staple of growing up. Thank you both for introducing it to me at uh, such a young age. It <laughs> didn't scar me, it did the opposite, it kind of opened my eyes up to a, a different way of looking at films. And of course, we've had countless laughs saying all the different quotes from from the movie. I Laura finally knows what I'm saying now because she's seen the movie and she can laugh at just the other day. I made her a bagel with cream cheese and I said, don't stare at it, just eat it. Uh, <laughs> she, she didn't get what I was saying. So um, now she finally, now she finally gets it. Oh, that's amazing. The thing is, it's so iconic it's like Jurassic Park, where it's so iconic that you forget that it's actually just, on a technical scale, a well-made movie. Like, great cinematography, great sound, acting, writing, direction. I mean, it's all there, but that kind of gets eclipsed just by the whole nature of it, just the whole it factor of it. So, yeah, it's just it was nice to view this through a critical lens for this podcast, and the book 
to echo what everyone's been saying. It's just a case of less is more. Like, it, like we got the point. It does feel like a rite of passage, Matt. I agree with Matt in that regard. It's like after like a big, long workout, you're happy about the end result, but the pain getting there, it's like, was this worth it? Was it not? Uh, Tim Tim will face that next week when he does his Iron Man there. Mm. Good luck with that, by the way. Uh, uh, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I mean, same here like zero star half star for the it, you know it doesn't matter but i'm, I'm not going to recommend anyone read it but it also at the same time it's like recommending a movie that's so bad it's good where it's like you just want to like look nothing at it like that it's nothing like that i disagree strongly well <laughs> I, i'm not saying that the book is so it the book is just something just experiencing it is it's like a marvel that it was released like it's a marvel that it exists uh, and it's a marvel yeah. that Brett Easton Ellis isn't uh, in, jail, in jail, as Tim yeah, said. In jail. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep, I we're all kind of in agreement here on on both the book and the movie. What a piece of art! Well, thanks, Matt and Tim, for devoting. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll definitely have you back, mostly because your episodes do well. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, we're just doing just doing it for the numbers. That's uh, fair. And yeah, we, we talked off mic about this, but yeah, as it stands, both the Ready Player One episode and the Martian episode are, are tied for number two for the most downloaded episodes. So yep. you guys, nice. you guys, may, maybe this episode will break that, become number one. We'll see. And I will wrap up this episode by saying this is not an exit. Oh, last line from the book. That's what I was gonna, were, I was gonna cut right there. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'll I'll edit that out. But it, but the if thing you notice, is, Laura, it's also on the door behind Christian Bale in the last scene of the I movie. I did notice that. Oh, yes, I didn't. I, did I didn't that. notice I did not, that. I did not notice that. The only reason I noticed that was because when I stopped reading, I flipped to the last page to kind of read like the very end. And so I read that line and then I was kind of looking for it. And then I saw it in the back of that last shot and I was like, there it is. Bingo. So that's how I was going to end this, the episode. So can I do it again? Yeah. Are we Go, wrapped up? You can do it again, but I'm also going to keep this part in. such a long episode. Yeah, go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. I'm going to wrap up this episode by saying this is not an exit. Cool. And then I'm going to cut here. <laughs> <laughs>